G'day, everyone. Quick message before we start. What we're trying to do with this podcast is to help people better understand their mind and how it works and give people practical strategies they can use to maintain and improve their mental health. Would you consider helping us to continue to do that with a financial contribution, large or small? If so, thank you. Just follow the link in the show notes. All donations, $2 or more, are tax deductible. Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works, mental illness and mental health. I'm with, as always, Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Well, as we record this, it is November, or as it is now called, Movember, after about 20 years ago, a group started the idea of growing moustaches in November to raise money for and awareness of men's mental health. So... Let's talk about men's mental health. One in eight men will experience depression at some point in their lives. One in five anxiety. Men are between three and four times more likely to take their own life than women. It seems men are less likely to seek treatment um, if they have a mental health condition than women. And men are much more likely than women to have drug and alcohol problems. Perhaps those last two are related, are they? Meaning men are more likely to self-medicate with alcohol and drugs rather than seek professional help than women, as, as women are more likely to. Our guest today is Dr. Zach Seidler, a psychologist, researcher, and men's mental health expert. He's the global director of men's mental health at Movember and senior research fellow at Origin at the University of Melbourne, which is an organisation that researches and advises on mental health. Zach focuses on men's mental health and thinks it's important to create specific mental health services and treatments that deal with men and masculinity. Zach, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm always intrigued by the bios. I love that one. Thank you. <laughs> well, hopefully it was more or less accurate, was it? On the money. Yeah, good, good, good. Are our rates of mental illness really different between men and women? And if they are, what are the most significant differences? Yeah. So this is a, a, a charged question of sorts, although it doesn't seem like it should be. Prevalence rates should be pretty simplistic mm. uh, to, to talk about. But as you suggested, the idea that, that men uh, experience depression or anxiety at far lower rates uh, than women, uh, especially in the young uh, male age demographic, um, I think doesn't really speak to the reality of what we see on the ground. And that comes down to a number of issues. Uh, one of the main ones being measurement, which is that if you go and you go and see your GP or your psychologist or psychiatrist, they're going to give you, you know, a number of different measures. They're pretty common. Most people know what they look like. Uh, if you go and you give the majority of these uh, to a young guy, asking them about hopelessness, about sadness, uh, that doesn't tend to, uh, you know, comply with their experience. It, they don't seem to be words that they have been socialized to understand, nor are they what they actually feel. And so when we start to look at these prevalence rates on a national uh, level, you start to go, actually, when you look at the alcohol and drug use, when you look at the suicide rates, when you look at the violence rates, uh, there seems to be an iceberg situation happening here, which is that there is clear distress, serious distress amongst men in our community. Um, but reliably, we're getting these statistics coming out saying that men, uh, you know, experience mental health difficulties at far lower rates than 
than women do. This is not a competition. This is not what we're seeking here, nor should we be spruiking this men versus women cul-de-sac, really. Uh, we just need to start to understand that gender differences don't get us anywhere. We need to look within men to see how certain groups of guys are experiencing distress and what we need to ask them to get at the uh, the depth of their everyday lives and be able to understand, actually, you know, shit is hit the fan, we've asked you the wrong question and therefore we're actually not able to understand your experience correctly. Ian, any uh, disagreements or thoughts so far? It's a really important issue because it's kind of interesting in one part of the world that I deal with, people go, oh, well, there's all these men alcohol and drug abusing. There's all these men attempting suicide or dying by suicide. There's all these blokes having accidents and injuries, but they're not distressed because we asked them whether they were distressed and they said no. Right. Did you have anxiety? Did you have depression? Did you have sadness? Did you have hopelessness? We tend to not ask them about irritability, frustration, not achieving what they wanted and and the behaviour that went with it. We tend to ask them about putting words on their internal world and relying on that first. So this is a really interesting issue. I do think it's been the case in our national statistics for a long time. If you took the total amount of substance abuse, alcohol, drug stuff, and the total amount of anxiety depression, it's about equal across men and women. But clearly the behaviours and the way we approach it is different. And as you alluded to in the introduction, James, one group gets a whole lot more services. The other gets a whole lot more interaction with emergency departments, police, out of school, other stuff, which, which a lot of it has. Would you get your act together? Would you just stop behaving that way as if it's a kind of voluntary kind of thing? The other tends to be engaged with and seeking help from a little more readily a health system and a health system is a little more organized to respond to that and i so, think so the, dif- the, the difference there is cr- is crisis versus early intervention and prevention you know so many women are coming forward early are seeing symptoms in themselves or are talking about it amongst one another and are therefore getting treatment uh, you know probably not at the best time but a bit earlier than ed or police and so crisis point uh, is is when men show up and that is is really problematic and i think that beyond mental health difficulties as they're commonly spoken about what we see manifest in men is that it is in those life transitions those life stresses around relationship breakdown unemployment you know leaving school and going to university it's those changes uh when you you start to see this this spike in certain behaviors there doesn't need to be a long history of mental health difficulties for there to be this serious ramp up in in distress and i think we should be looking for that so, so the significant issue seems to be that that men are less willing to seek treatment in a general sense earlier than, than women. If that's the case, how do you change that? Because you can't say to men, you should, you should seek treatment early because they're not seeking treatment to give you the opportunity to tell them that. Exactly. I, I, I see it in the opposite direction in a way, which is that it's not that men aren't seeking help, it's that help isn't seeking men. Uh, which is that plenty of men show up. They show up all over the shop. Uh, you speak to any guy and they're like, uh, you know, I am willing, I'm, I'm able to do it. I tried it. It sucked. They didn't understand me. They didn't speak my language. I felt maligned or I felt, uh, you know, disrespected and, and like I wasn't seen for what I presented with. The health system is not attuned 
to men's needs. And this is not a, a misandry argument. This is not, you know, we, we speak about medical misogyny, for instance, and I think that that is very clearly taking place. But I think that there is underlying discrimination around men's distress that is not being responded to in certain ways and not intentionally, but it is that our training and the way that our health system and our mental health system specifically looks like uh, you know, over the years has become somewhat feminized because of the way that emotional communication and vulnerability and openness uh, and reciprocity are kind of the core tenets of what psychotherapy, for instance, looks like. But the majority of men are going to be getting uh, and seeking help in very different ways. And so we need to, to start to create, you know, a mental health system built with men in mind that sees these different uh, processes and, and interactions and is able to respond to them accordingly. So it's not that men won't come forward because in no other instance do you just blame a population for you start to go, there's a systemic issue going on here. If if 50% of the population aren't willing to engage with the system, you can't just blame the guys for that. There's got to be something going on. I, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I went and saw my GP a number of years ago, female GP, think I'm depressed. She, you know, treated me perfectly, really. Um, but I guess How I old did... were you, James? Just confess. How old were you when this happened? I was in my 40s. Exactly. Um, when did I, I, when did but men also, start seeing doctors? When also, men... I guess I went with the conclusion. I didn't go with a series of symptoms and being confused about it. Um, Ian, your thoughts about that? The idea that 50% of the population, particularly the the Fifty percent has traditionally been dominant and overrepresented in most things are excluded with respect, or at least under under helped with respect to mental health. Seems like a bit of a stretch to me, but you guys are the experts. Well, let's just go back a bit about how the healthcare system functions, because there's two kind of classic ways in. Jack, it's actually crisis, emergency departments, whatever that can happen to any of us, heart attack, whatever, or. You try and enter it in a more orderly fashion through primary care, through the referral services. You said, James, you go to the GP. If you look at the data, generally speaking, and we've looked at this for about 30 years prior to Headspace and everything, back in the 1990s, women turn up because women have contraceptive needs in their teens. They have family and child issues in their 20s. They interact with and often form relationships with GPs and with others for their necessary health needs. Blokes start turning up in their 40s when stuff starts falling off and doesn't work. And they've often learned, you know, it really does hurt. I'm really going to have to do something about something. But they've largely avoided proactive health care and they haven't really needed it except in emergency when they busted something at a footy game or split something open and had to sell Now, this up. is sounding more like me. Now you're but, talking. You know, to- so you have had health care, but you've had the bits where you had to turn up. You've had emergency departments. You might have had the urgent operation, but no way you've engaged in that kind of more orderly process. Till they get I, into their I've orders. had many parts of the health system <laughs> say to me, did you not think of doing something about this earlier? Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that there is, there is something to be said here for the fact that the burden of whatever might take place, there is something innate within, uh, you know, the way that men are socialised that is making them, you know, less likely to reach out. There's, there's two things going on here. We can't suggest that it's just the system. Guys are brought up in a certain way that makes it harder for them to, you know, connect with health systems. But the, the labour 
that falls on on women partners, you know, mothers' shoulders as a result of men not seeking help until crisis is dire. And so the argument here is that this isn't a, a men deserve more, you know, uh, cut of the pie here. It's that if we get men in early, not only from a health economics perspective, because we're going to save on ED and police and all the stuff that costs billions of dollars, but we will also make sure that if this guy gets the help early, his wife isn't going to suffer his children won't, you know, experience, you know, intergenerational trauma, whatever else goes on. We can we can nip this in the bud with good early preventative health care that the majority of guys just aren't getting. In saying that, generationally, more young men are starting to understand and have these conversations, which is which is exciting. So, so that's consistent with something you've said since episode one of our podcast, all those uh, years ago, Ian, that early intervention for anyone is much better than later intervention. So here's the crutch. But how, crunch. Well, the yeah, question because, is, how do we do it? Well, you know, all those other problems you've got as a middle-aged bloke, don't worry, we'll catch up, we'll fix. But the trouble is from the mental health problem, you want to be intervening here, you know, for healthcare, let alone the prevention, you know, 15, 16, much earlier on, all those issues we discuss all the time. And more young women find a system that's more sympathetic to the way that more young men at that age are in trouble with school, with authorities, with their parents, everybody else, and and they're likely to take up alcohol and other drugs and stuff because they are, pick up Zach's point, they are distressed. They're not nothing. They are distressed and they're going to manage their anxiety, they're going to manage their distress, they're going to manage their disappointment in ways that are available to them. So I think, pick up Zach's point, the double-edged sword for us is not just the general healthcare reluctance of men, but our missed opportunity for earlier intervention with young men is really at the heart of this issue now. And of course... It's not an easy system to get into. The demand for care goes up. So we've seen a lot of the work I'm associated with, long waiting lists. You go to the waiting lists. By the time anyone gets to see them, about 85% are women, young women, right? They were, when they came along, it was about 60% women. By the time they get to see anyone, it's about 85%. What happened to the boys? Oh, well, obviously they didn't want care. Obviously they didn't need it. Obviously they didn't. <laughs> Hang on a second. They're the ones back in emergency departments. They're the ones self-treating. They're the ones out of school. So for us, this is a really serious issue because so, despite- so, Sorry, just on that, is yep. your theory that it's, you know, like when you go bungee jumping, not that I ever have, the last minute they rush you through it and they say, do this, do that, do that, do that, do that. Okay, quick, you off. So that the specific uh, strategy is don't give them any time to bail out because they're scared. Are you suggesting the long waiting list gives a lot of men an opportunity to bail out? Zach, you're nodding. It's not even the, just a long waiting list. It's it's everything in this process. It's you know I went I did a, a study a, a long time ago looking at a hundred psychology clinics uh, across Sydney, and you walk into their waiting rooms, and ninety seven of them only had women's health magazines. If I walk in right now, and this isn't even no women want that. No women want these websites with butterflies and everything's purple. No one wants this crap. And so what we need to understand is that we need to come to a gender responsive uh, health system that understands that there are different ways of being and we should be attuned. And beyond this person-centered care idea, which is really common in the mental health system, we're just going to adapt to everyone that comes in the door. When you do that, you lose everything as well because it's like, I don't see gender. I don't see ethnicity. We need to see all of the things that these people are coming in with. And so what happens is that the young men come forward. If you give them any reason to not engage, they will take it. And so we need to learn from why young women are, you know, able to have that resilience to jump over those hurdles and those barriers. But I think it's their, their social connections, the families, the communicative abilities that they, that they hold that we're now trying to ramp up in young men as well. 
and its illiteracy about the system. Can I just take some of the built-in biases? Because it's really important to say some things are built into medical training and health training. One of the things at primary care is watchful waiting. Don't do anything. If it's really serious, they'll come back. Now, for young people, generally speaking, this is entirely untrue. Some poor parent, some poor sibling, some poor other person has finally persuaded any young person to get there in the first place because the system's fairly youth unfriendly. And then to be told, oh, well, we'll just see what happens. <laughs> well, needless to say, the ones who are not back ever are the young men. You're kidding. And then the people – and the effort they've gone through for a parent or somebody else or a sibling or, or a friend to get there, to get the person to care was huge. And to be told, well, we don't really do anything in a hurry, you know, and, and if it's really serious, like this is how we work out whether it's serious or not, we see how many times you're willing to come back. Now, can you think of, you know, just imagine this was Uber Eats, you know, well, we're not going to give you anything, you know, but if you ring again, you know, Maybe. we might, you know, so – and I say that because the youth world itself, itself, and through technology, has become very customer focused. It's become how do you respond to the needs? If people want to eat at home, we'll take the food to them. If people want to use, you know, rather than you queue up and you line up to do these things, I think younger people also now have an expectation that they will not have to line up at clinics between nine and four on a Tuesday with a six week waiting list to get a service which might say, and be good to see you again because – or what well, I don't really do this anyway, so I'm going to refer you to somebody else where there'll now be another 12-week wait to do something. So the, so the mismatch between the opportunity and the way the system's organised in a modern world is so – let's face it, it's a 1950s British NHS general practice system. Line up, be grateful for anything you get. So it doesn't like really work. There's two issues there, and the, the one you've just identified is a – a resourcing and a systems issue that you've talked about a lot and kind of applies to everyone. Zach, I wonder just specifically on getting men engaged and feeling comfortable, I guess, more comfortable in the health system. If you're in charge now, what changes would you make that, that, that you know, that would show us a better health system in 2033, if you had 10 years to do it? Easy. Uh, so I, I think that the, the first thing is that, uh, you know, firstly, from a, a medical curricula, uh, uh, the way that the people are taught, you know, whenever I go around and I speak with med students or psych students or anyone, I'm like, what are your thoughts on men and masculinities? What did you what did you learn? And they always talk about the fact that, you know, I, I learned and we spoke about how men don't engage, how men don't seek help. I'm like, so even if they don't believe that inherently, they have this bias that has been that has been washed over them consistently over time. And so these stereotypes are rife. They are omnipresent in the way that our health practitioners are engaging with guys. So even if the man is willing to engage, you're still kind of like surprised that he's willing to talk to you because you've got that belief from the outset. If I'm looking at the health system more broadly, what am I going to shift? We need to start talking to men. We need to start marketing to men. We need to start being willing to to completely shift our approach around what men are desiring what type of health system do they actually want which is that they often speak about after hours you know they often speak about uh, having 
you know, quick and dirty sessions, you know, at, at lunch times uh, when they can when they can grab a, a second. And we should also be looking for what are those moments uh, when men are going to engage in the same way that young women engage around contraception early. We know that lots of uh, new dads are are seeking information. They're like, how can I? And I've seen so many studies where the amount that they are rebuffed by the health system in those interactions, again, builds in this this uh, you know idea that they don't belong there rather than let's invite you in all dads let's go and give you a, a session the second you you come in to check with you know where your mental health is at where chronic conditions are at and that can start to build relationships with the health system that is what is lacking but really when it comes down to it it's an it's a marketing thing it's a framing and an education thing um, but young men especially need to be it's the same with this social media TikTok stuff. It's like we keep talking at them. We keep do- using this alarmist language that they're, they're, they're not all right. The boys are not all right. Rather than going, hey, guys, what do you need right now? There's a reason they're being pulled into the darkness uh, in, these, in these online forums, for instance, because the common, uh, you know, the common narrative has no place for these, these discussions around men's needs. And this is not a, a, a men's rights argument. This is... This is for, for, for everyone's sake. Uh, if we can start to question uh, men's, uh, you know, common desires, what they, how they want to engage with, with the health system, with the education system, etc., we can start to adapt it. We can't do it on their behalf. Can I ask, Zach, since you're now sprouting, people can't see this, a marvellous moustache mm-hmm. and a Movember shirt, and it's James and I barely have any hair, let alone facial hair, to show. When I was the CEO of Beyond Blue 20 years ago, we were engaged with Movember at the time, and, and I mean, I think at the time, prostate cancer and, and mental health were on the agenda. And, and a lot of the new technologies were being discussed at the time, like could we use technologies to connect with men? We were having a lot of these discussions. If you go and look at the most recent figures in the healthcare figures, et cetera, we don't seem to have made a lot of progress. So we've been having a lot of discussion about essentially what you were just talking about, the sort of dialogue with men and, and I suppose more recently with younger men about that. But we don't really seem to have made progress in this area compared with some other areas. I mean, men do go online and order hair loss products and erectile dysfunction products and people have marketed successfully to men through convenience and delivery. Don't worry, just send a check. We'll send you what you need, you know, type stuff. We clearly see older men engaging with with other areas and, and areas. What do you reckon is – where do you reckon we've gone wrong or what we haven't learnt in some way. We've been having this conversation for a long time, and I think people hope technology would be the answer, but that hasn't simply been the answer. What's your feeling about where the conversation, and particularly now I think the cohort of younger men, where, where I think the issues are still there. Actually, actually, James, where the success stories? I actually think we've been more successful with older men <laughs> who are more comfortable in themselves, their networks, their workplaces, to, to actually engage because they kind of have to. And maybe they have wives, partners, children who kind of force them to. But, mm. but younger men, I think we're still really, really struggling. So I'm really interested in what you think because we've been having this discussion for a long time. We have, yeah. So November is in its 20th year this year, which is very exciting. Um, but the, the the narrative has really taken ups and downs. It's It's moved in mysterious ways. And I think one thing that I've been reflecting on recently is that we've done very well um, at promoting this notion of help giving i think that november's done that really well we've got six and a half million guys no one can mobilize men it doesn't happen you know black lives matter 
climate change, you, you do not see men rallying. You know, you see them, uh, you know, looting often instead. Um, what we want to find is what is that special source. And so we've been going for this look after your mates. We've been going for this. If he's struggling, here are the signs. Here's how to go about it. I am skeptical now that promoting this help giving narrative is leading to help seeking. So telling everyone, I think there are lots of guys out there who are really good at checking in on their mates now. I think that 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 is becoming a part of the zeitgeist. What we're not seeing is now I'm struggling. I, you know, this, this self stigma rather than societal stigma, that has been an immovable object, I think. And that is what requires a real deep understanding of the way that men are engaging with the world and how they see themselves in this success failure narrative and this idea that they need to be something, something greater. And the more maligned young men feel, and I can tell you there is anger, disempowerment, disillusionment, whether or not it's real, it, it doesn't matter. It's true. It, you know, they feel it. They feel it every day. Can, you, so- can you be more specific about that? Is it economic, social? Oh, man. You, Everything. You, you look at any line, you look at any, any trending, uh, uh, you know, employment, education or health outcome and young men are just descending. Uh, it is not, it is not looking good. And I think that seriously, within a, a decade or so, we're going to see, you know, a serious issue within our schooling system around the way that we are not adapting to, you know, they've all got ADHD. Like, how is that a solve here? Let's just medicate everybody rather than going, actually, maybe young men engage in in education in a different way and we need to adapt in the same way that the the health system kind of looks. So we're finding, you know, that the amounts of, of young men graduating from university is slowly, you know, descending as well. So while we have had this notion of patriarchy and male privilege for a very long time and we need we need to find a way for there to be equality um no one will benefit if young men are turning to maladaptive coping drinking drug taking aggression and violence as a result of of this new politicized idea of what being a man is and so we need to turn this around and realize that um you know, I, I often talk with with you know feminists around the fact that this is a this is a feminist issue. The best way forward for 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 women and girls is to find a way to help men and boys, you know, achieve it, their their capacity, their potential, and flourish. Yeah, and- but we could shoot this a bit further, James, because this goes to the identity issue, which we discuss a lot. I mean, we discuss it in relation to a lot of issues around young people where we think we've made progress. We still see the thing with a lot of same-sex attracted kids, with a lot of kids with gender identity kind of issues. The the search for identity, like who you are as you move through your teenage years and young days and what you're good at and how you identify, in a sense, build a more robust sense of yourself and your place in the world. Clearly, I think Zach, you're identifying something really important. And the, we see the aberrant groups. You, know, you see the radicalisation in certain cultures. We see the the... the pull towards very archetypal, old kind of aggressive male stereotypes and sort of fighting against an unfair society type stuff. So in, in terms of sort of ways forward here, I, mean, I think I agree with you totally. We're seeing some really nasty trends which clearly say we're not providing role models or we're not providing good ideas of the identities that young men and the variety of identities I think that young men can achieve. The, as my kids say all the time, Dad, stop being so binary. You know, like what are the things, what's the way, the many ways in which young men can be in the world. Do you have kind of ideas about uh, about where this kind of goes? Or, you know, in a 21st century way, 
you know, what are the kinds of identities that young men find appealing or, you know, would identify with in a pro-social way rather than some of the very aggressive antisocial stuff that's being marketed to them? The reason that they're aligning with the antisocial stuff is because it is a clear blueprint for identity formation. It says, do this and you will get a Lamborghini. It says, it says, act this way and you will get a date. And that's, it's literally, it, it plays on the binary of the success failure narrative. It plays on this idea of precarious masculinity, which is this great theory, which is that, you know, you're constantly on the precipice of having things taken away from you. That's how men feel. You're working really, really hard. And then suddenly you don't want a beer at the pub and your mate calls you whatever, and you're out. You're in the out group. There's a constant feeling of ostracism that is hanging over you. And so as a result, you're doing fear-based decision-making rather than seeking this expansive view of who I could be. That's what young women are doing. That's why they're flourishing. They're killing it because they have this idea that they can do and be anything. There is beautiful narratives taking place on every social media around the girls and and the power you know that that women have in this current circumstance i cannot imagine a uh, you know a, a pro social view of men and masculinity that's like guys you can do anything like that's not the moment that we're in right now but when it comes to reimagining masculinities it is around flexibility in it's around the fact that we cannot say that you need to conform to these things or you are not a guy you need to understand in fact that there are so many different ways to apply certain ideas of masculinity in different contexts. And we need to have people around them. You know, I, I often talk about the fact that, uh, you know, we tell men to talk, but we're not actually ready to listen. Brene Brown always, always says this idea that it's like, um, guys, be vulnerable. Talk about your feelings. Go, 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 go. Stop, 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 stop. That's too much. Oh, God, I hate that. That's disgusting. And that's what happens. We've got this idea, and everyone's perpetuating this. It's like we want this beautiful, expansive, lovely, you know, new dad who's really emotional with his daughter. But there's just a line where it's, can you go and, and fix the shed? Can you go and, you know, it's like, when are we getting pulled into these stereotypical ideas and how can we break them? Well, I think you're raising another really interesting idea, which is one we talk, you know, what is permissible to talk about or not? And we do have kind of ideas, and certainly in the mental health world, we have very strong ideas about, James and I argue about this all the time, what's in your head? And I go, well, sometimes people don't have it in their head, they're just doing stuff, they are not really haven't really articulated that, they haven't really sort of cod- thought about that in a particular, and then there are acceptable narratives and there are unacceptable narratives. So there are unacceptable narratives around frustration, around aggression, around just feeling that you're not potent in the world and very unsure about what you want to do and very unsure about what constitutes an identity worth developing. Uh, perhaps, and do you, think, do you think a kind of reluctance to experiment with different identities? We, we, in a sense, we have more narrow stereotypes about what a successful guy is and they're quite – some of them just really don't sit very well <laughs> – with many but young men. Yeah. How are we going to benefit if there are no places and spaces where young men can flex these ideas? Like, that's why they're going on, on you know, 4chan, 8chan, Reddit. They're going into these safe spaces where they can flex and challenge ideas with one another. They cannot do it in the light of day because it is not, it's not, it's not allowed. You know, even this conversation is somewhat against the way that, that the world is moving. And, and my argument to that is always the fact that, um, you know, I spoke with, we had 500 therapists in this RCT that I just did training them in how to engage with young men. The majority of them at the outset 
did not feel confident to deal with male suicide, male anger, male emotionality. So you've got this bread and butter of 50% of the population that you do not feel confident dealing with. How are you going to have young men coming in talking about their sexuality, talking about how they want to you know, make new friends when you don't even feel comfortable to assess and discuss you know, masculine identity? This is, as I said, it's become politicized and therefore it's become a no-go zone. So can I ask anyway. you in the RCT of the 500, what was the gender split of male and female therapists? Wait, 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 wait. what are you talking about? He's just done this trial of training five. Not everyone's people. in your profession, you know. We did. So we did, we did a trial where we created a training program. Yes, it's eight or 10 hours or so online. That's the first of its kind. It's called Men in Mind, funded by Movember. And what it does is it, it teaches these clinicians about how to connect with their male clients when they're angry, when they're suicidal, when they're, you know, struggling with, with depression and how it kind of looks, you know, depression can manifest differently, all of that type of stuff. So we had 587 of the clinicians, they, they came in uh, willingly, hopefully, and, uh, and took part in the training. And we did pre-post and follow-up, which is, and so some of them were in the, in the group where they got the training and some were in a control group where they didn't get anything at all. And so what we found is that because none of them have ever considered lots of this stuff, lots of people consider masculinity and gender to just be general knowledge. Well, I've, I'm a dude, so I must know what's going on. The funny thing, so it was about uh, 80% uh, female in, which is to be expected, maybe 75%. Our profession, psychology, is moving towards 90% female, which is a serious concern um, moving forward. But that's another discussion. What what we found, in fact, is that the men at, at pre, before doing the training, the male clinicians were saying, oh, I kind of get this. I feel confident working with, with guys. I think I know what's going on. The women were less confident. They felt a bit, you know, it was a bit precarious. They weren't really sure what was happening. At post, the women ramped up. They were like, actually, I kind of know what's going on. I've, I've worked with this. I've seen it. I've witnessed it for so long. And the, the male clinicians were like, oh, shit. Actually, maybe my own personal experience wasn't all there is out there. Because that's what we were trying to show. There are so many different ways of being. But after, what we found is this really strong effect that... They did feel much more capable, confident, competent to to work with men than they did before, and this was just a drop in the ocean. So we really need to do more. So just, okay. just as an aside here, James, I mean, because this is one of these about the attractiveness of services or not. What what services men and you, James, you're going to get to talk about your favourite things like men's groups and other things. Where are men prepared to go? So just by contrast, for example, I have young women walk into my office with eating disorders and they look at me and go, mm, I don't know. And then they see Elizabeth and Elizabeth, my partner, down the corridor, and they go, I'm going talking to her. <laughs> she clearly, whatever it is, and it relates to body image and eating disorder. In the first, yeah. in the first instance, face credibility, face validity. You know, now it's choice, Ian. Yeah. It's just choice. We yeah. don't need less women. We just need more choice. Well, and so you have a choice then. So many men would say, look, I prefer to talk to a woman. But many young men would also say, hang on a sec, I'm just not sure. Right. So this variety, I can say choice, but variety or spectrum of things. I yeah. think what Zach was alluded to earlier on, and in my own discussion with a lot of young female psychologists, there's a lot of assumptions about what's in boys' heads, what's in boys' identity. So, I mean, your training thing goes to this. But it's very common to do that. And most of what we do do in care does involve young women. And a lot of our treatments and a lot of our therapies tap appropriately into that. So I think we're sort of highlighting, hang on a sec, there's this other whole group <laughs> in the marketing well, let, of it, the attractiveness of it, and the way we do it doesn't really yeah, connect. Let, let's, um, let's talk about men's groups. So I would never, ever, ever 
Like maybe if I'm really, really unwell and Ian makes me join a men's group or men's shed or anything like that. But I'm kind of involved with almost five informal men's groups, four of which involve around uh, sport or physical activity. Go and play touch footy, have a coffee afterwards. Go uh, one sailing. I've just started that one. It's awesome. Um, One's tennis. And the fifth one is a group of school guys who Zoom every second Monday. And that is by far, even though they're some of my favourite people, by far the one I do least because I just sit there. And it's awkward. So, yeah. It's, it's not that awkward because there's about six of us. Just after a long day, I don't feel like sitting on Zoom yeah. again. I'd much rather run around. Um, so that's, that's how it works for me. I don't know how it would work if I wasn't the sort of man who enjoyed physical activity. Um, but it, I find them fantastic, kind of the chatting, but also kind of the doing. Yeah. So, uh, I think again, variety and diversity is key. There are plenty of men who want to go and do pottery, who want to be in book clubs, like finding a book club that you're a guy and you can go to good luck. Like that's, that's a really difficult task. There is tough, tough guys book club on Facebook, which is great. But I, I think that um, what you're alluding to is something that Movember has, you know, been spruiking for a very long time, which is the idea of not face-to-face activity, but shoulder-to-shoulder. And yeah, that's what next, a, lot next guys, a lot of guys uh, love. And the, the idea that it doesn't come with any depth is bullshit. You know, there is indeed an, a real opportunity for... And I always say this, when I'm playing ping-pong or playing pool, I used to play them with clients. I had a ping-pong table in my in my clinic. When When their hands are busy... The ability to just get this rolling stream of consciousness is beautiful. And it's so, and, and that's how you leverage masculinity to overcome some of these barriers that exist that are socialized, which is that, oh, I feel a bit uncomfortable. It's a bit awkward. It's like an icebreaker, but we do it in a male centric way. So, so Zach, I, I'm going to use you an example for 30 years ago. When I was working in a child psychology clinic. I set up a football game, right? Guess who turned up? Boys turned up. And, and some of the best rugby league-playing young women turned up too, who were also in trouble with the law at the time. And I got into trouble from the child psychology clinic. Ian, this is not an acceptable way of conducting practice. But the people turned up. What are you talking about? And I think it's just continuously throughout my career, this and James and I, this doing stuff, a variety of stuff, and including a lot of young women who are in trouble, I might say, the doing stuff thing is something that our health services don't turn on. I don't think we market enough. We are actually like doing stuff. And so James is thinking we we're often emphasising that, the relationship between doing stuff and actually feeling better. And while doing stuff, you're highly likely to actually develop and do things in common, like there's common purpose, there's an affiliation that comes of it, there's a trust and reciprocity that comes with it. All these things that we value in therapeutic relationships can be built by common activity. And James, and they're enjoyable at the same time. There are other spin-offs in terms of physical health, etc. So, Zach, how come, exactly. since we've known that this is the case, how come we just... Never get there. <laughs> we just go back to doing what we've always there's, done. There's so much. Yeah, let's just sit down, sit on my couch. I got a lot of comfy chairs here. Then, yeah, yeah, comfy yeah. chairs. <laughs> exactly. I, I think that there's uh, there's a you know misunderstanding that there is risk, that there is great risk in leaving the therapy. Who's at room risk? Where at clients, risk? The therapist. You know? yeah, therapist where at risk. <laughs> but I've done. You know, I, I worked in I worked in Darwin for nine months, and I. I went out. I never did anything in a room. There was there was constant, you know, running around. Uh, you know, we're under a tree having a chat. We're going for a swim, whatever it might be. I don't know where this paternalistic idea that you must come and learn from me came from, because young people hate that. 
you know, instead we need to learn together. And so if we can build in experiential adventure based, you know, stuff, I don't know why it's this fringe therapy idea to kind of get out of the, of the room and realize that these young people are existing in the world. So taking them out of the world to do therapy and then sending them back in is kind of counterintuitive. But the really important thing, James, around men's groups is that, you know, we should not believe that formal help, that formal health services are the panacea here. Informal support, men, young men, it doesn't matter, you know, women, it doesn't matter who you are. We rely on friends and family for so much. And so uh, believing that they have power to actually improve our well-being and if we can coordinate it in a way that's really useful, um, never shy away from from those things. They're really, really powerful. Um We've got a little time left, and in it I want to talk about violence. So there's no doubt that the uh, overwhelming majority of people who commit violent crimes are men. Ditto uh, domestic crimes, ditto people who kill women Women are overwhelmingly men. Two things, what do we do about it? And, And secondly, how do we talk about it? Recently when a young woman was killed by a man, there was a... Big debate about language, and there often is. Um, someone was criticised for the language he used. Should we call them monsters? But monsters are f- from fairy tales. Monsters aren't real, and monsters are inherently unable to be stopped except by something bigger and more powerful. Don't we need to look at them as being people, people who who commit violence and try and work out what are the risk factors and if a hundred people have those risk factors how the hell do we find the one or two that are actually going to do something really horrible yeah so this has become a a real um interest point for me uh because i see there being really huge intersections with men's health and so firstly that the man that you're you're speaking about who made those comments about uh, the guy who who killed um that that woman uh, lily you know some of the other comments were like he's he was a prefect he was an upstanding role model you know as if as if how could this happen these these strange uh you know, something came over him and, you know, Ian, Ian and I have spoken about the fact that psychosis was thrown around willy-nilly as if it's it's some kind of excuse, also not having any understanding of this young man's mental health either. So what I see here is that uh, violence prevention is a men's health issue. Yeah. That's the way that I see it. I see this and, and the re- people are like, oh, why are you making this a men's thing? I see it as a as a men's thing because the emotional labor, the 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 strife, the survivorhood, the victim, uh, you know, situations that women are dealing with is, is exhausting. And what we're doing as a result is we are pumping more and more time and funds into crisis once again, into building more shelters, uh, which is extremely necessary. Women need to have a place to go in these instances, but we are not dealing with the problem. There is nothing, you know, and the government's just come out with a three and a half million dollar grant looking at healthy masculinities. They're putting hundreds of millions of dollars into the the pointy end. How do they think that anything is going to change um, if we don't actually look at this from a preventative manner? And as, you know, Ian and I speak about often, no one understands prevention. No one understands what it is or how to do it. It's just, it's this thing in this fairyland. We, you know, we love throwing the term around, but when it comes to violence prevention, it needs to be seen as a public health issue. And that's the only way we're going to get real change here, which is that these young men have uh, certain uh, 
you know, expressions that are coming out, certain behaviors that are manifesting preemptively. And everyone believes that it happens out of the blue. That's not true. There are certain things that are happening. There are emotion regulation issues. There is shame. There is, you know, this happened in the, in the, the form of a relationship breakdown as well. Many men don't know how to deal with rejection, for instance. There are so many opportunities to create a system that sees these moments in men's lives and knows how to intervene preemptively rather than going, oh, this thing has happened. Now we need more crisis centers to respond to it. This should be on men's shoulders. This should be for men to talk to other men. For, for you know, We don't need a, a ribbon on our lapel. That's not the answer here. We need to have really complex conversations amongst one another and do the heavy lifting. Yeah, this is and? such a good point. I'm glad Zach raised it because prevention can mean anything. And the worst sort of prevention at all is lapels, awareness days, feel good, some general general overarching critique of masculinity, which does nothing. So, for example, taking the very specific examples Zach raised, I hate to say to Ben, but relationship breakups is probably going to happen to you at some stage in your life. And probably when you're young, it's going to hurt the most. You know, second or third time, maybe not so bad. You know, it's going to hurt. And certain key things as families with young children in certain situations. So if you know that that's the thing, you know emotionality will be high, what are the things that you need to know? What are the skills we all need to have for that? Yeah. What's the surrounding social support? What are the other options? You know, these we know crisis points. We know periods that are associated with very high risk how does that play out? What's its right of ramifications? What support, as we discuss all the time, James, what, what support do men have during those periods? To what extent have they built other relationships? To what extent are the processes, family court, other situations, taking into account the high emotionality of that period, taking into account the risk period? In the rest of health, we have a harm minimization strategy too. We know where there are periods when the harm will is very much more likely to happen than others. And you can do a lot in those areas and a recognition. It's it's a situation in which most of us, the great majority of us, at some stage in our life will find us in. It will be a period of high emotionality. But what happens then, you know, has the opportunity for significantly reducing the chance that something as adverse as domestic violence in the first place or something terrible, you know, really serious violence or murder actually takes place. Now, at the moment, yeah. the, the level of this in Australian society is very high. I mean, in October, five women died in 10 days at the hands of men. And, things. and then over the course of the years, we are seeing... So, the, you know, it's a really... And Jack's point, what we're good at, we love to build an emergency department. We love to build a place solution. Yeah. How do we fact. prevent? Mm. Feels like, given we're, we're 45 minutes in, feels like we should probably do a specific episode on violence, don't you think? And I, I, I also just want to say... Uh, the ABS statistics for, for suicide that came out, uh, you know, recently for last year showed that the greatest risk factor now for male suicide is no longer depression, a history of depression. It is relationship breakdown. Mm. So we have two sides of the same coin here, men harming themselves and men harming others. There is serious ability to intervene preventatively on both accounts if we start to address this appropriately. Yeah, and it feels like we should do another app on, on what those specific things are. Um, look, Zach, thank you so much. It's been re really interesting. It's a fascinating area and, a, and a, you know, not an easy one to talk about in some ways. And, and you, um, you, you're extremely articulate and knowledgeable about it. It's been great. Our guest has been Dr. Zach Seidler, psychologist and researcher specifically into men's mental health. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
Mining Your Mind is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace Beyond Blue. Head to Health and Lifeline. Google them. We can call Lifeline on 13114.